Good morning and welcome to Entrepreneur Relatives, the podcast of the Bachelor Lab at the Munich Technical University. My name is Antoine Leboyer and I'm the Managing Director of the Software and AI tool Bencher Lab. We are having a special episode today, which is that we are asking our last speaker, Professor Andy Wu from the Harvard Business School, to come back for an encore episode. We hadn't planned to actually discuss in 2024 new technology than the metaverse, but uh, like many, we were actually uh, caught on the uh, soap opera that happened in between Friday and, and now about OpenAI, and we thought that we should discuss this together. Just as a reminder, but I assume that everyone has heard about it on Friday, it was announced that OpenAI board had uh, fired Sabatman. If very quickly after, Ryan Brockman, who is the chairman, resigned as well. Mira Meriti, who is the, was named interim CEO, and I think she was the VP of software development or chief scientist at the CTO. During the weekend, Sam Altman tweeted a picture of him coming back to the office with a, with a guest card, like the sort of one that you get when you visit. You have to, you know, you're not from a company and they give you a guest card. And he seems to be, so, you know, making, he made a picture of, of a selfie of him with the card. It looks as if there were a sign that a lot of discussion was to have him back. But in the end, they did not reinstate him. They actually called someone whose name now escapes me as a CEO, but someone that was not coming from, from, from the world because he was the, 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 the former CEO of Twitch, which was sold to Amazon. And more importantly, right after two things happened, there was a letter that was sent by probably around 600 of the 700 employees, not something like 650, to the board asking them to uh, reinstate uh, Sam Altman and Greg Brockman, as well as uh, threatening to go to Microsoft if this wasn't happen. And in the same amount of time, Satya Nadella announced that he had hired both Sam Altman and Greg Brockman, not quote-unquote as employee, but in a similar way to what he's done for LinkedIn or GitHub as running a new AI company. So we don't know exactly what's going to be happening. The uh, soap opera, as I said, is not is far from over. Everyone is talking about uh, about uh, this, but we thought that it would be it would make a lot of sense to go back to Andy and uh, ask him what happened. Absolutely, Antoine. Thank you for having me here today. And just for the record, for our listeners, we are recording at. 10 a.m. Eastern Time on November 21st, 2023. That's 7 a.m. Pacific Time. So it's very possible, Antoine, by the time we're uh, done recording here, that the people on the West Coast will have woken up and contradicted everything we said. So we will we will have to w- wait and see. But I think we can do a good job here thinking about what the lessons are for entrepreneurs and managers at minimum. So there's definitely stuff we can learn regardless of how this specific situation turns out. And Antoine, the first thing I want to highlight here is that I think the rise of OpenAI and Microsoft's relationship and the prominence of this particular instance of Silicon Valley palace intrigue is really reflective of the importance of technology in our society and economy today. This is just a very like nuanced piece of palace intrigue that is on the cover page of every major news outlet, at least here in the United States. And this is the kind of thing where I don't think normal people reading the New York Times spend too much time thinking about these issues, but it's on the cover of the New York Times every day, right? And 
what I find most fascinating about this story is the corporate strategy angle. So we have to think about, did Microsoft make the right decision here in its original decision to link its future tightly with OpenAI? And second, the organizational form on the OpenAI side. What is the interplay between nonprofit and academic research with a commercial purpose? And so for both Microsoft and OpenAI, there are real strategic and identity problems that this situation is now revealing. Andy, one other thing which seems to have transpired in this unusual non-profit and for-profit structure is that the board felt that they were representing the, the not-for-profit. And uh, when you think of it, Microsoft had 49% of the company and didn't ask to have a board position. So how unusual is this? So this is a really fascinating situation, but in the broader context of the business landscape, not specifically unusual. And so just for our listeners here, the way it's set up is that OpenAI originally is a nonprofit entity with a social purpose. And they, as a consequence of realizing that they need vast amounts of money for training AI models and hiring engineers, decided to create a subsidiary that is a for-profit entity. And that for-profit entity is what has been Uh, had equity offered to outside shareholders like Microsoft and Thrive Capital. Now, that for-profit entity is what Microsoft owns, hypothetically, 49% of when they originally made the investment. They don't have any particular control over the nonprofit per se. Now, this is where I think it gets fascinating because we should juxtapose it against where else we see this kind of structure. And this notion of a nonprofit organization owning or controlling a for-profit company is less common in the US, but it's actually extremely common in Europe. And so I think the best examples of this are the Carl Zeiss Foundation, which is the sole shareholder of the Zeiss company, and then the Rolex Corporation, which is wholly owned by a nonprofit, right? And those are situations where I think it's generally worked out because the mission of the corporate entity does not conflict with the social purpose of the nonprofit. So I don't think the nonprofit that owns Rolex particularly cares which watches are being sold as long as there's funds generated to support the social mission. Now, I think Zeiss is an interesting case where actually in the history of Zeiss, there has been business choices that the Zeiss company wanted to make that the nonprofit entity didn't want to do. One of those, for example, is entering into military hardware. So the foundation didn't want the Zeiss for-profit company to do that. And so they they didn't and have shuttered those business units. Now, coming back to the open AI situation, in the open AI situation, it seems like Microsoft had a lot less control than we would have thought. And in fact, it's actually kind of like shocking how little control Microsoft had for a company that they have not just put money in the money. Microsoft can afford the 10 billion, but the big problem is that they have linked their entire like cloud strategy and application strategy to this entity that it turns out that they don't have much control over, and even more importantly, has a purpose fundamentally different than profit. And then if, if the not if the partner OpenAI was entirely profit-motivated, I don't think we would see this level of conflict. Now, can you, you know, there, there are a lot of young, young founders who are going to be listening. Can you just remind how people get into a board and and who is the board accountable to. Exactly. And so this is really worth reflecting on deeply because in retrospect, it works quite different for nonprofit and for-profit entities, right? 
And so in for-profit entities, the board members are representatives of the shareholders, and there's various permutations by which they get assigned to the board. But for an entrepreneur, let's say, an entrepreneur who's raising venture capital, you'll have board members that are there to represent the common shareholders, which is to say the management team usually and the employees. And then you have separate board members that are appointed to represent the preferred shareholders, the outside investors. And a common debate that happens in the fundraising process is who gets what balance of board seats. Do the investors control the board or the the uh, inside common shareholders, the employees and management control that board? Now, in the case of a nonprofit, this gets a bit fuzzy. Now, in this case of OpenAI, my sense is that the board is reflective of selected expertise that was supposedly relevant to the mission of OpenAI. So you have executives from Silicon Valley, as well as experts generally in AI technology and AI ethics. However, the process by which the board is appointed functions mechanically the same as a for-profit company, but with potentially different outcomes in that the board sort of self-perpetuates itself and nominates and picks board members. However, in a for-profit company, the shareholders do have power over the board, and then they can swap out the board members. In this case, there's not an obvious mechanism for a shareholder to switch out the board of a nonprofit because there's no shareholders. And so in practice for an organization like the President and Fellows of Harvard College, that's the official name of Harvard University. In that case, in practice, the way the board is assigned is by many of our large supporters and donors as a sort of show of respect and a way of giving them a bit more power. And you can think of them philosophically a bit like our shareholders. But in practice here, it's not so clear who the shareholders are in a philosophical sense. I want to come back to, to the move which is happening right now. It looks as if a lot of Microsoft engineers were extremely intertwined on the operations. To, to as, as you indicated, it looks also as if the amount of money and resources given to OpenAI from Microsoft was a mixture of phones as well as access to Azure. Do you have a sense for what it means for Sam Altman and Greg Brockman to join Microsoft or create a new organization? Yeah, so in the hypothetical scenario, and of course, we don't know if this is going to transpire yet, but in the scenario where Sam Altman and Brockman and then potentially up to 700 employees were to come over to Microsoft. The vision here would be to create a subsidiary, a separate business unit that is focused on research in AI and to keep them siloed and compartmentalized so they can freely focus on that research and advance the technology that they were already developing at OpenAI. In this case, you know, there, there's a slight bump in the transition, but in practice, Azure and Microsoft already have access to all the uh, the model parameters and such. And so if you can get the talent over, they can immediately get to work on what they were already working on at OpenAI because Microsoft has access to the IP already. Now, that said, I would have some concerns about the long-term viability of subsidiary Microsoft thriving in the way that it could have thrived separately like OpenAI did. And the best case example of this is Microsoft itself and Google where Microsoft has done a lot of AI research for a long time, but we can see that over the last 10 years that not, very little of it has panned out as effectively as OpenAI has as an, a separate entity. I think the even better example is Google. So Google DeepMind, I think, is the sort of canonical example here of what happens when a big company takes over a, a research-focused entity on AI. 
Uh, Google had great technology being developed in DeepMind, but they couldn't make anything of it. And in many ways, I think that Google limited what DeepMind could have been well, through its ownership of it. And we all know that the Transformer paper, which was this 2017 document, which started all these uh, all these pre-trained models, was made by Google. But the one that was able to take the content of the model of the paper and make it technically viable and commercial viable product was OpenAI. Yeah, exactly. And so we see this kind of challenge all over the place. I mean, I think the the most historic, like classic example of this problem is uh, Xerox used to have a research organization called Xerox Park, and that's where they invented the graphical user interface. And of course, Xerox never took that to market. But a you know an entrepreneur named Steve Jobs walked inside, went out, and then did it himself and pioneered the graphical user interface. Right. At, at the venture lab, what we, we insist is that usually one has to make the distinction between research, entrepreneurship, and innovation. And research is advancement of state of the art, but innovation is seeing that new research has value. And this is usually what happens. And the people that are the true innovators are those who actually find the value. That's also true. There, there was a couple of business school cases on operation management, which focus exactly on that, if you, if you know them. Absolutely. Yeah. Although I do want to add a caveat here in terms of Microsoft's position. So there's a risk here that Sam Altman and the team under Microsoft may not be as innovative as they were before independently. But for Microsoft's perspective, they, it's not clear they necessarily need them to be that innovative. Part of the opportunity here for Microsoft in the original partnership and with the new subsidiary is really shifting the conversation around thought leadership and AI. And prior to the open AI relationship, Microsoft was not perceived as the AI leader. I'm sure Google was the putative leader for a while. And if Microsoft can just shift its public image to being the leader in AI by having Altman, even if Altman does nothing, uh, that's plenty enough to sell a lot of Azure and sell a lot of Microsoft Office. Which is what you and I discussed last time. Yes. Let's play with this one second, because you said that they have access to the IP. I'm confused right now as to be able to really articulate in this case what represents an IP. I mean, if, if I take the example of my company, we actually, when we saw there was an audit of the code and we had a company which during two days went through every line of the code. Mm-hmm. And so, so the IP to me is very clear in this respect. But if you look at the IP which exists with a large language model, this is going to be a sort of Gaussian matrix with a lot of weighting and so on. So is there the same level of defensibility as in classic software? And by comparison, does it mean that uh, that uh, IP transfer and, 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 and upgrade and roadmap are more difficult to articulate? So let's start by defining what exactly it is Microsoft has access to in terms of IP, and then let's separately assess if that's defensible or not, right? So specifically, our, at least based on public reporting, Microsoft has a, in air quotes here, exclusive license to the models that OpenAI has developed. And by model, I mean that they have access to the specific parameters that have been estimated in the model, as well as the choices that have been made in how the algorithm is designed. And the algorithm is just like the conceptual architecture of the model. Now, that IP in theory is closed. They, you know, OpenAI hasn't published its 
content and its its model in a while. So it's relatively closed. And I think there are a lot of nuances in how that model is constructed that reflect real intellectual property. So for example, there's a lot of like very subtle fine tuning and algorithm hacks that the engineers have done at OpenAI that Microsoft now can see and has access to. That said, I think there's a separate question about defensibility here. Uh, let me just highlight, I think, two threats to the defensibility of what OpenAI's model would provide Microsoft. The first threat is, of course, the rise of open source models. And to a large extent, the open source models are very close to, they're still behind, but very close to the capabilities of the closed model that OpenAI has licensed Microsoft. That's one threat. I think the bigger threat is what we're going to see in a couple of years if this prop if this tension between OpenAI and Microsoft doesn't get resolved. The problem is that Sam Altman, Brockman, and 700 plus engineers have proprietary knowledge in their brains about how this model is built. I'd be willing to bet you that Altman and many of the other 700 engineers at OpenAI could easily leave right now and start their own company. And to the extent that they do that, that would pose a real threat to Microsoft. In particular, uh, in California, they don't have they don't enforce non-compete agreements. And so as a result, you can leave as an engineer and go ahead and start your own company. And you don't need to take the model with you if the model is in your brain. Now, of course, this is not as easy as I'm saying, because it's not just one engineer. It's each engineer knows like a little piece of it. But in practice, it, it would be a great head start for them to go out on their own. And that would be a threat to Microsoft's access to the model, so, uh, exclusive access to the model. So I guess here one of the, the the elements to be able to really be able to resolve the tension is going to be to ensure that Altman has freedom of operation and can basically um, run the, his operation the way that Nadella is describing GitHub and LinkedIn are being run. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And can you speak more to that? I'm sorry. Uh, say more about that. Well, it's my understanding that uh, Satya Nzela has described, I've heard him describe the fact that when they do acquisition, they try to to keep the operations as self-standing and not do something that, say, Amazon or Google has been doing or even mm -hmm. Apple, which is that you, you integrate and you blend everything to one single entity. He's saying that this allows him to retain talent and to have the ability of each of them to compete and mm -hmm. act at the speed as which the industry is doing. So if this is the case, what I understand is, is in the way that um, uh, Nadine has described some of the arrivals, that he's not, quote-unquote, an employee. He's actually the CEO of a, of, a, of a separate entity owned by Microsoft, which is a right. way to say that it will be the same model. So that creates, I think, a real tension for corporate strategy. So if we put our corporate strategy hat on, the idea here is that on one hand, as you're saying, that if we can keep the this former OpenAI team as a separate subsidiary wholly owned by Microsoft that allows us to retain talent and allows those engineers and scientists to conduct cutting-edge research and generate innovation. On the other hand, if we don't integrate that business unit wholly with the Microsoft Corporation, that leaves a lot of potential synergy value on the table, and it kind of defeats the purpose of Microsoft owning it in the first place. So as an example, in the short term, the most valuable thing Microsoft could do is have the engineers from OpenAI join Microsoft and then spend all their time building Excel plugins. 
that would be the the most short term value that Microsoft could get. Of course, as you you know, you're smiling right there, Antoine, and you're smiling because obviously that has innovation implications in the long term. But you have to imagine that at some point, if you were to own all those engineers inside of Microsoft, at some point you do need to shift them to working on things that have synergy value with Microsoft's offerings. Okay. And I think the engineers know that. Let's be clear. I think they do know that. Oh, yeah. I mean, right now, the integration that you have of, uh, of uh, you know, um, open AI capabilities on GitHub, on, uh, on uh, you know, the copilot, the copilot modules, they expand a lot and you don't have this on Google Docs. You don't have this on, uh, you know, I know, I know quite well the system management stack because that was my old world. You don't have this on many other system management players. So they've been, trying to pursue this AGI capabilities, but they've also been able to work with Microsoft so that Microsoft could actually integrate as features capabilities of OpenAI. Right, absolutely. And so that kind of like arm's length alliance type relationship, I think has worked reasonably well for what Microsoft was trying to accomplish, except of course for the last 72 hours, which demonstrated the risk of hinging your entire future on a separate entity that you don't control. Understand. What could this mean for competitors, for the Anthropic, for the Google, for the 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 Mistral or Aleph Alpha of the world? Well, the advice I'd give companies like Meta, Amazon, Alphabet here is that they need to keep their foot on the pedal here and keep stepping on the gas. That this might give them a bit more time to catch up in terms of where they need to make up ground in AI technology and AI applications and AI hardware. And the tension that we're seeing here is something that is going to play out in other settings for the other companies, maybe not to this kind of dramatic succession-like situation. But we have to remember that Meta's main open AI model, Llama, is an open source project. And that is an open source project with a lot of other partners, including academic partners. And you can imagine academics maybe behaving kind of like the open AI board did, right? Second, if you look at Amazon and Google, they have hinged a lot of their direction on a startup called Anthropic. Anthropic is a big a benefit corporation. And benefit corporations have both a for-profit and a social purpose codified into their charter. And you could imagine Anthropic also making decisions that are not to the benefit of Google and Amazon, right? And so this open AI situation is very dramatic, but this reflects a core tension of, as to how we've organized the business of artificial intelligence. As to draw an analogy here, we see this a bit with like the pharmaceutical industry. So what happens is academics and universities will generate drugs and then we partner with Pfizer or something to then commercialize the drug. But obviously the academics and Pfizer don't necessarily have the same interests at hand. Can we stay on this for one second? Because I'm old enough to remember when say Excel was introduced. Mm -hmm. I think that you have the guild of accountants, which I don't think exist which says you have to make this for profit because that's going to be having a massive impact on, 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 on our business. Do you think that the consideration of AI uh, being sentient, the, the famous Skynet type of uh, doomsday scenario, are, are you know not overdone? And uh, don't you think that copyright items are much more of a concern? 
in terms of the doomsday scenario argument, I, I, I am I do have serious concerns about the implications of AI and generative AI for our society. I probably wouldn't run through the same narrative as sort of many of the thought leaders in the space. My main concern is the impact on jobs and on sort of our social dynamics as a society. If we look at the impact of the internet on society, I think there's a legitimate argument that if we could roll back the internet 30 years, our society society as a whole would be more stable. There'd be more jobs and more more social cohesion without the internet. If I may interrupt you here, I'm much more concerned about social media having no regulation, the famous rule of 230, than I'm about the risk of deep fake. And right now, there's nothing done on social media. So I, I now that I have you know worked with quite a number of startups on AI and that we are seeing them move from lab and academic environment in production, now that I've actually been working with uh, an organization called Applied AI, which is the, the premier organization at the university to work on uh, on a model on a focus model to to study Jewish tanks after actually discussion with Samad Man, I'm starting to feel that the ability to control the output of AI is much more mature than what the doomsday guys are, are people are saying. So the people who control it can, of course, control it. I have two concerns beyond that. The first is the open source models that any particular person with a reasonable skill set can soon just build the model of their own to do whatever purpose that they have in mind. I think the second concern that we might have is like, do we trust the people that are currently controlling the AI? And so in many ways, imagine the scenario where the AI was controlled either by a for-profit like Microsoft or a non-profit like OpenAI. If it was controlled by Microsoft, the concern we would have is that they would use the AI aggressively to make money, which might appropriate value from consumers or businesses. It, I can't even articulate to you the concern we'd have with open AI controlling it because it's literally, I think, five people that can control it. And do we trust them more than we trust the publicly traded corporation? I'm biased here in that. Obviously, I teach at Harvard Business School. Actually, I trust the for-profit public corporation more because we can at least predict what their intents are. Uh, in the case of a nonprofit, who who knows what they're going to do with it? And it's weird of us to assume that they have good intentions in mind. There's no reason for us to assume that. Do you think that the um, shift to for-profit is going to be something which is going to accelerate far more so as much so so much that the not-for-profit one is going to be disappearing i think we'll have shifts in this back and forth over time so ai for a long time has been sort of a non-profit academic endeavor we're seeing now interest on the for-profit side i think there'll be a lot of for-profit action in the next few years but i do think that there'll be a vested interest in many players to operate ai as a non-profit activity and let me just make the following example here so if we go back and look the history of opera and the history of ballet and the history of orchestras those used to actually generate profit and then over time, what's happened is that they've shifted into essentially money losing entities that rich people either own or sponsor, right? If we look at professional sports, like horse racing or something, like horse racing is probably the best example. You used to actually make money in horse racing. Now it's just a endeavor of rich people that like to do, do it for fun, right? And own a horse. Now, I want to be clear here. There's a distinction between legally being a, a nonprofit entity versus functionally operating as a nonprofit entity. So a professional sports team in the United States is 
a for-profit entity, but I would argue that many of the owners operate them like nonprofit entities in the sense that they are doing it as like a hobby. Uh, we see the same thing in media ownership in the United States. In uh, I think in Europe and elsewhere, media companies are owned by the government. But in practice in the US, organizations like the Washington Post and the Atlantic are functionally nonprofit activities of certain wealthy people, right? And so if we turn back to AI now, the argument is that if, if AI is very important, it would make sense for a certain subset of those with resources to operate it even at a money losing way to maintain their the influence they want on society in the direction that they want, kind of like a sports team, kind of like ballet, kind of like a newspaper company. Okay, so I, I so this is in a way like uh, Elon Musk buying Twitter, or now called uh, X, and, uh, and 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 starting to to spin this as his uh, own personal pastime. So it's no longer orchestra opera; it could be some you know our, our horse races. It could be the same thing. Antoine, that's exactly the right analogy. And and frankly, an important detail here is that Elon Musk is technically a founder and major donor to OpenAI, yeah. right? And what do you think he had in mind when they were launching OpenAI in the first place, right? He he's the, he's left the organization because he's had some conflicts with the uh, leadership there and the direction of it. Actually, at least if you believe Musk's public words, he left OpenAI because he was angry about the commercial direction that they had taken. And people are speculating that that commercial direction of OpenAI is why the board made the decisions they did. Maybe one last question. Do you think that Sam Altman is positioning himself to be the future CEO of Microsoft, or is this, is this the wrong question to ask? If I had to speculate, obviously we're speculating here, but I think Altman is going to be excited about the opportunities to use the resources at Microsoft to continue the mission. That said, the most likely scenario is that Altman will go on to launch his own company. So I imagine that he, if he goes to Microsoft, he'll be there a couple of years and eventually he'll go on to do something else and launch his own thing. He has a wide variety of hobbies and endeavors, and he's obviously very talented. I think he'd want to operate on his own. I think the nature of the requirements of being a public company CEO are quite different than I'd say Altman's interests. And so he himself has uh, wanted to pursue his own hobbies at the expense of you know, open AI or even his previous endeavor at Y Combinator. I could probably just make one comment, which is that I have a number of contacts at Amazon, uh, Microsoft, uh, Apple, and so on. The people at Microsoft are genuinely happy. In other words, it, it managed to be an organization that seems to be able to keep people, multi talented people, motivated, active, and as well happy to be where they are. That's not always, it seems, at least from my personal contact, and I know this is anecdotal, but I haven't seen this that systematically with other tech companies. You know, Antoine, I've observed exactly the same thing. The I've written case studies about Microsoft, and when I go to meet with the executives, there are cer certain times I met with the all the executives I interviewed with were there at Microsoft for over 20 years. And one thing that's really, if you ever go to Redmond, and go around the campus at Microsoft. One thing that's fascinating to me is how many Ferraris are in the parking lot. And it's surprising to me because these are executives that have been in Microsoft since like the, the 90s. Like these are guys who worked on Microsoft Office and they could do anything with their lives. And their choice is that they just want to stay at Microsoft and do their thing. And I think this is a lesson here for a lot of our listen younger listeners in that, at least in the US here, like 
our, our young people work at jobs for like less than a year and then leave and move on. But I think there are great organizations out there like Microsoft that you can go to as a young person and actually build an entire life and career there. And I, I think there's something really special about that. And I think we don't give enough Microsoft enough credit for that. I think Google and the free lunches gets a lot of excitement and stuff, but like the lunch is Microsoft doesn't have the free lunch, but the free lunch isn't what matters. What matters is feeling like you're in a community where you're valued and you can advance your career. Well, that's a great way to end. Andy, thank you very much. Great. Thank you. Entrepreneurial Reality is available on major podcast platforms where you can find other inspiring presentations. Do subscribe if you like this podcast and want to hear more. Do give us a rating. Let your friend know about it. And we look forward to having you with less home opera, but for more entrepreneurial Reality.